0: is a senior agency official he's based on a true character i worked for that guy
1: welcome back to the live drop my guest is alma katsu she's a writer intelligence professional with a career of over 35 years she's worked at several federal agencies as a senior analyst where she advised policymakers and military and matters of national security was also a senior technology policy analyst for the Rand Corporation, continues as an independent consultant and technology futurist, advising clients in government and private industry. Aside from her historical fiction, her horror and short stories, her spy novels Red Widow and Red London, which is coming out soon, have received very strong reviews, especially from other intelligence professionals. We talk about her craft, what makes her book so readable, where her characters come from, some from the halls of her previous assignments, begin transmission. Yeah, first of all, I want to thank you because I, like a lot of people these days, I've been having a little bit of a problem sitting down and reading a novel. I'd like to say that both I read both your novels, um, Red Widow and Red London, and uh, yeah, I went right through both of them and wasn't uh, distracted or pulled out. So I don't know what you did, but thank you. I feel like I'm cured. I can actually sit down and read a novel now. It's uh, so
0: good to hear. Thank you.
1: Yeah. What's your, what's your secret?
0: Well, I'm sure we're going to get into this once we start talking about my crazy career, but I do kind of pride myself on being a writer as much as I was an intelligence professional. I put a lot, a lot of work into the writing side of things. And so, um, You know, I write very character driven novels. So they're not like a lot of genre books that are more plot driven, you know, where the plot takes precedence and you just want people to turn those pages at any cost. You know, I really try to make the characters seem really whole and engaging. And so then you want to follow them through, you know, through what happens next.
1: Yeah, I was going to mention something about that. It's it's a challenge with this genre, isn't it? Very much so. To be completely character-driven?
0: Very much so. I mean – Uh, I'd love to hear your thoughts about it because, in some ways, I don't really feel like a great student of it. But you know, it seems like you can generally look at spy novels and break them into two categories: the ones that are more like John Le Carre, you know, that are a bit more um, character-driven and really look at a lot of the moral and ethical issues and the other types of issues that come along with espionage. And then there are the more um, action ones, the ones that are maybe a little more plot-driven and these days it seems like a little bit more militaristic. And, um, you know, so there's this tension. What kind of book are you going to write? What kind of story do you want to tell? And hopefully you'll be able to reach the right audience, or both audiences, if you're lucky.
1: I mean, I'm just kind of throwing some things out here. I think with some of the more uh, character-driven novels, you're thinking, is this person going to be able to get this done, given the constraints of their personality, <laughs> you know, yeah. given that given their abilities or, or, you know, their demons or their difficulties, their, their personal obstacles and so forth.
0: Yeah, I, I, you're absolutely right. And unfortunately, as a writer, I'm finding more and more that we're being asked to sort of collapse the two, that you can't just have a super character driven book, but there has to be more of that, um, you know um, the sort of Damocles hanging over their head, right. That we have to have this countdown and a lot of action and the other stuff. It really asks for the writer to pack a lot into one story, you know, just so it has its widest appeal.
1: You spent 35 years and, uh, At CIA.
0: Well, I spent 35 years in intelligence. Intelligence. So, you know, I, I was thinking about this ahead of time, looking through some of the other shows you've done and some of the people I know who you've spoken to. And I realized that for someone who knows a lot about the intelligence business, who's talked to a lot of different practitioners, then I would be a tough interview because I'm very unlike most people in intelligence. So I did have this super long career, whole adult career, (laughs) but um, it was not like most people's careers. I moved between agencies. I did more than one area of expertise. I spent some time on the policy side as well. And I was also in a think tank for a couple of years. So overall, I think, I mean, I loved my career, even though it was very different, but I think it's given me um, a broader view, not only of intelligence and how it works and how the pieces fit together, but how we support policymakers and how we support warfighters and what all those moving pieces are, Um, which, uh, you know, I have a lot of friends who are retired from the business and, and some of them have gone on to write and that's a wonderful thing, but I think, you know, their ten, their view maybe tends to be a little bit more in the lane that they're used to. Whereas I feel like, you know, maybe I'm able to bring that that broader view to it. Yeah, it was a crazy career and I really loved it. I was an analyst for most of that time, um, 25 years with NSA and about 10 years with CIA, but it was broken up. I was at NSA <laughs> for a long time. And then, um, the Iraq, well, 9-11 happened, and that's when I was pulled into policy for a few years because I had a expertise in um, post-combat operations, which <laughs> this could get very technical if you want. But um, so while I was there, I ended up going to the Office of the Secretary of Defense to work on the Iraq war planning and got caught up in that whole war between the administration and the intelligence Community over Iraq and what the what the intelligence was really saying, what the administration wanted it to say, and so oh a little disappointed with the Defense Department, I jumped over to CIA and I spent the next ten years at CIA, and then I went back to NSA. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, yeah, interestingly, and finished out my career with them, and then I retired a, a few years ago. But I still am a consultant. Um, I also spent about two-thirds of my career as an analyst, and that, primarily that's a research analyst job, but, um, and I worked some very traditional and non-traditional intelligence topics as an analyst, but I also I started and I ended my career in technology working for NSA. And, uh, so, and that's what I do now. I'm still a technologist. I'm actually a technology futurist and I advise on emerging technologies with implications for the intelligence business. See, so pretty weird ass career. Yeah. You
1: definitely, have, you've definitely got a, a different point of view. You, yeah. People can't really tell you to stay in your lane, can they? Cause you're just sort of,
0: no, they cannot. You,
1: you've been driving down a six lane interstate highway for most of your career. Yeah.
0: Yeah. It, it made for a really interesting career, but it makes it hard to, um, to stand out in some ways, makes it hard to sell yourself in your post life, you know, after your career as, you know, the Russia expert or something like that. So not a lot of invitations to be a talking head on CNN or that sort of thing.
1: Right. Right. I was talking to Dave McCloskey who was an analyst at at CIA Mm -hmm. for a while. He just wrote Damascus station. I think I talked to him about a year or two ago, but we were joking around about how, um, There's almost this bias of specialization in some ways that goes on. You know, he said, well, well, we better talk to the Syrian, you know, East Asian uh, shoe repair guy before (laughs) 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 everything gets so specialized that you can't really talk to someone unless they're, or you're not really listened to unless that's your, that's, that's the hole you've been digging.
0: As an analyst, I can certainly speak to that because I, I did run the gamut from being a little baby analyst when I started out all the way up to being a national intelligence officer, where you're one of the leading voices for your community in your field. And, you know, over career, a long time in a career, you see how that evolves, right? You have to earn your place in the community. And um, it, it's very competitive. I mean, that's something that I think came out a lot in Red Widow. People certainly ask me about it. Like, is it really this cutthroat? And it is. I mean, and like I said, I've spent most of my time at two agencies, CIA and NSA, which both have very different cultures. Uh, both are very competitive. Personally, I found CIA easier to navigate than NSA. It has its own particular challenges. And I don't know if you want to get into that um, because it's not as well known as CIA, but it's definitely very competitive and it can be very cutthroat. And that was the other thing that came out in Red Widow that I really wanted to write about because, you know, when most people think of CIA, they think of case officers, of course, the clandestine service, human intelligence, which is primarily what it's known for. But um, what people don't realize is that case officers who I'm not denigrating them at all, they do a very important job and it needs a very particular skill set. But case officers are there to convince people to do something that's not in their best interest, to betray their country. And so they're taught to be incredible manipulators, right? And 99% of them, oh, maybe I'll take that down a notch, 90% (laughs) of them know exactly the boundaries of that behavior, right? But there's some that can't turn it off. And they end up, we call it case officering, they case officer their colleagues, they case officer their boss, they case officer their wives and their children. Case officers have a much higher rate of divorce and alcoholism and all these things. Sometimes they can be extremely controlling and sometimes they can be dangerously so. And if you've ever been in the sights of a case officer who has just like internalized this and thinks he has to control yeah. every person he runs into, it can be um, unpleasant to say the list. It can be frightening. And that did actually happen to me. I was in an office with a guy who had been PNG'd under the rendition program and they kicked him out of the clandestine service and they sent him off to this other service. And my boss was dumb enough to hire him. And he destroyed the entire office because he was just so vicious. And so I kind of wanted to show that there's this other side of it that, that people don't always see. And, um, You know, for as much as I love my career, and I do say that CIA, of course, still does very important things for this country. There are just some downsides that people don't often
1: get. Yeah, case officer, case officering people. I think I have been case officer before. I mean, I'm, I, you know, I've had a long career in Hollywood, and we've got our share of manipulators as well.
0: You know, it's funny we've been. Red Widow and um, Red London, a lot of Hollywood, pe- dealing with Hollywood people, and they've been saying that to me too. The more they <laughs> talk to me, they're like, "Oh my God, that's exactly like Hollywood." In which case, you have my sympathy. Yeah,
1: thank you. Yeah, I'd love to. I'd love to dish on this guy that they hired. This, this, but you know, one of the things I wanted to jump, jump, uh, jump tracks with was your character Lindsay Duncan. One, one of the aspects of her background, which I thought was fascinating, was her was her work in uh, micro-expressions and you know, really? trying to understand if people are telling the truth or, or if they're not or what their real intentions are. And it really brought out kind of some of my uh, training as an actor. I had uh, – you know, I studied a variety of you know, method and Meisner in some different ways. But one of the people I studied under really broke down human behavior into like singular emotions one at a time. Like every sort of reaction – be it big or small, that somebody has, there is generally an umbrella of emotions that would fall under that. You know, if there is a betrayal, there is going to be anger. There is going to be sarcasm. There is going to be hurt. There is going to be all these other things. I noticed in your writing that you seem to have a you seem to have an interest in that um, interest in that as well.
0: Well, that actually came out of the tech work that I do. Um, you know. As I'm sure you're aware, CIA is very, very interested in knowing when somebody is lying to them. You know, if you've got a walk-in, for instance, off the street in a foreign country, walks into the U.S. embassy and says, I have information that I know you'd be interested in or I have access to information that you would like. I want to work for you. Well, they want to know if that person's sincere or if they're lying to us, right, if they're trying to plant themselves in and they're actually a foreign asset. And so they go, CIA goes, or even their own people, right, we get polygraphed every five years or so repolygraph to make sure that we're still telling the truth and that we haven't slipped over to the dark side or done something that makes us blackmailable. So they spend a lot of effort trying to determine whether or not people are telling the truth. Well, this technology came about a few years ago and it's, you know, it's still in the de- developmental stages but it's using image capture and artificial intelligence to be able to find those minute little micro expressions. They're only a fraction of a second long. So it's not something that you can catch with the naked eye. And um, so I knew there was interest in the time at this emerging technology. And I thought, well, that would be fun to kind of put in the book. So that's what I did. I have to say it sort of backfired on me a little bit because that's the thing that my editors and my agent like seized on. Oh, that's super interesting. She should be an expert in behavioral analysis. So this is the problem with intelligence analysts. You know, we really have this close relationship with the truth. We don't really like to portray something that's not really true as the truth. So I did eventually agree and and we made a bigger role for this. But in truth, behavioral analysis is not foolproof. You know, it's been around for decades. And while I think they, you know, get better at some techniques than others, it's not something that um, is going to be able to tell you with absolute certainty if someone's lying or not. You know, there's a couple TV shows. I think there was... um, in the past, there was one about 10 years ago, I want to say Gabriel Byrne was the um, the lead in it. And that it went on for a couple of years, and it really made people very interested in behavioral analysis. The O.J. Simpson trial did the same thing. Um, you know, a lot of talking heads came on CNN and that sort of thing, talking about, well, he did this, and that's a surefire indication. Well, nothing surefire. Anyway, so we do have this capability that because of her background, she was just a little um, undergrad working with some postdocs on this technologically based, technology based program. But it did give her this special insight into what to look for and that, you know, people's behaviors that might tip their hand to what they're actually thinking.
1: I noticed in the first book in Red Widow, you you mentioned something about how well, in some of some of your descriptions you'll say, "Oh, she looked down at her notebook, you know, before glancing at the door, showing a flash of anger, insecurity." <laughs> I mean, there would be like three different emotions in like a in like in a quick glance, and I noticed you didn't quite use that as much, or at least you kind of you, you didn't use the combinations of of descriptors in Red London as much as you did in Red Widow.
0: Yeah, I did try to pull back a little bit on Red London, because like I said, that analysts, you know, worry that I was pushing something that wasn't exactly true. You know, I just am not comfortable with that. I think that makes me very bad at um delivering that killer hook, <laughs> right, that publishers, but also readers might might want to see. I think they will get into it. And it's just a fallacy of mine. I just can't seem to get a over that. And you know, partly why that's true is because for a while I was, and I still do, I shouldn't be talking about this, but I still do work for the think tank over at CIA. And in the office next to mine was the pool of the, um, you know, the old seniors. When I say old, I mean that in the literal sense, like people with walkers and canes who, you know, sit around there and, and just sort of shoot the breeze all afternoon. And some of them do the reviews for studies in, in intelligence on, books and TV and that kind of, you know, pop culture stuff based on, and I just, have heard those guys complain about, especially ex agency people who misrepresent things in books and how it just, and I think that's just like in the back of my mind when I write something that I know it's going to trip that wire and and the old guys are going to complain about it.
1: The old guys.
0: I'm one of them too.
1: (laughs) You're not one of the old guys though. Now there's something interesting about your books. I wanted to, wanted to kind of throw out quickly is, um, You know, when I'm reading a book, I kind of, like anybody, like a, you know, a white man of a certain age, I'm sort of used to being able to find characters that I identify with, you know, and um, I wanted to say that I, uh, I was looking in your, (laughs) I was looking in your books for like, somebody that I could, you know, I'm always looking for that Max Fonsito character in, um, (laughs) <laughs> you know, somebody who I can sort of – that one guy you can kind of rely on. You know, he smells like talcum powder and, and tobacco or something. You know, <laughs> that, that old Russia hand, you know, who they drag out and you're like, whoa, the voice of wisdom. But um, you don't seem to rely on the uh, male savior very much <laughs> in your books that I'd have to what? say. You, you, some of your – Your characters are, you don't know what people are going to do, you know? I mean, even Davis doesn't take the call at the end and you're like, huh, I thought he was a good guy, but.
0: Well, yeah. Well, first of all, that's certainly very true in the intelligence business. You really don't. You know, it's hard to be a hundred percent sure of anybody under the right circumstances. Like even your mother might betray you, you know, you just got to remember. And it's so sad sounding, isn't it? Okay. Maybe not your mother, but your uncle or something or your best friend that you That's bought. That's a good premise for a book now, for 10 years. <laughs> Oh yeah. I tell you, I am a machine for high concept yeah. <laughs> book ideas. Literally they come out like every other day. We've got two whirling right now, but, um, but I did make sort of a conscious effort because I wanted these books to, to represent the women who work in intelligence today, which I don't think are well represented in a lot of pop culture. I mean, that was a big thing for me because a lot of you it's true. There's a lot of women who are the experts in their field or very senior, incredibly capable. A lot of the best officers and managers I worked with, and and I was a fairly senior manager when I left. I was at the office director level, you know, and I'd been a national intelligence officer. Um, I've worked with a lot of amazing officers, and a lot of the best were women, and I just wanted it to be a matter-of-fact thing. And the other thing, which may surprise you, is the villain in Red Widow, spoiler alert, is a senior agency official. He's based on a true character. I worked for that guy. The story in Red Widow actually happened with some... Obvious modifications, but that's what happened. This guy kind of let his ego get away with.
1: I think how you described Eric is like somebody they like. You know, angular face goes to the gym. I'm like, they they might, they might like me there.
0: Oh, they love you there. They love handsome people. Love handsome people because people will more easily lie you know i mean tell the truth to somebody will want to cooperate with a good looking person are you
1: serious i thought it, i thought the i thought the ideal was this kind of gray person who sort of fades into the woodwork who
0: that is absolutely part of it too william colby's you know gray man thing you want somebody who's not going to stick out in people's minds but um under certain, certain circumstances it really pays to be attractive more people will be likely to confide in you or want your attention or want something from you the gray man might have to work a little harder but he'll also be able to be forgettable more easily you would be less forgettable
1: unfortunately
0: the curse the curse the of, curse you. of
1: it. so eric was based on a real person and <laughs> that I, I i thought yeah. that was one thing i thought was Man, either this is based on something real or it's a bit of a literary jump. You know, sometimes some things seem almost too true. You see, they seem <laughs> right. implaus. The implausible things end up being the things that were kind of based in reality.
0: Yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Oh, and you wanted somebody else who was a um um a, a, a role model that, you know, like a, a good guy, uh, and that's the character who is the chief of staff at CIA. He kind of comes in. About halfway through the book, but he he really doesn't have any uh, much weight until the very end. And and his name is Patrick Pfeiffer in the book. He's based on a real person who's actually a friend of mine. (laughs) And in real life, he was the chief of staff at the time when this guy I worked for did this heinous thing and my friend, I didn't know at the time, but Larry was the one who made the decision to fire him. And we talked about it afterwards after I told Larry, Oh, by the way, I have this character based on you in a book and we were laughing about it. And he read the book and he's like, Oh my God, don't you know, I was responsible for X. Oh, wow. You know, he was like the final decision. He's a great guy. And that's why I chose him.
1: I mean, to to think, to think that people like that are just, you know, hitting Starbucks or Dunkin' Donuts in the lobby on their way and. to work oh yeah you know, it's just hard to oh, yeah. it's hard to believe you know,
0: you'd never know especially in the northern virginia area who that is standing in line next to you yeah yeah i remember the story you probably remembered a couple of years ago general hayden who's retired now was on the train like the acela i think he might have been coming back from new york to dc and he ended up talking about some classified stuff to, with the seatmate and he was completely overheard by these people in back who ended up recording him these kids yeah. oh really yeah you never know you gotta watch what you say,
1: yeah you do <laughs> i know I noticed your character of um well Lindsay's asset was a character named Pop off was that sort- was that sort of an homage to the nineteen fifties g r u guy or just a coincidence
0: you know, yeah, just a coincidence in a way he he's sort of homage to a lot of them um Early on, when I moved to CIA, you know, when you are at an agency, there's always a lot of mandatory training you have to take. And so even though I was a mid careerist by the time I jumped to CIA, they put me in this one of their counterintelligence classes at the time. And they brought in this guy who had been a defector back in the Soviet times and. Um, who came in and briefed the class. And, you know, he'd written a couple of books since he'd been in America and that sort of thing. But he, you know, what he did and what he went through in his particular case always stuck with me. I can't remember his name, but, um, but that's just part of the interesting experience you have when you work in intelligence, you get exposed to, you just never know who you're going to meet.
1: Right. I wanted to, the one question that's a little bit out there, but, um, you know, considering your background in, but I'm wondering, do you think it's? I mean, have you tried tried this new chatbot thing? This this AI technology.
0: I've actually written on Chatbot GPT for a couple clients. Right. Uh, what would you like to know about it?
1: Well, I should probably <laughs> just be acting chat asking Chatbot about this. But um, I, I guess it's uh, well, I've just done a little bit of research on some of the AI, and that this this AI, the technology is based on machine learning, or just looking at you know it's kind of a predictive technology where you're just looking at volumes and volumes of different combinations of of you know pieces of literature and you're kind of predicting the next word one at a time to some extent and that it's it's not really capable of forming its own like model or concept that it writes around that things are still sort of going um almost in a linear fashion but um well, first of all, you can correct me on that. But also, I just wanted to know, is it possible for one of these things to, to write a novel?
0: Oh, sure. It just depends on what you look for in your novel. So it's very interesting. And, and I'm sure most people have heard at least a little bit about chat GPT. And it's based on um, the latest um, natural language processing, uh, artificial intelligence. It's um, a big, um, the training um, data for it is called GPT-3. Uh, it was developed by OpenAI, which is a research organization, basically, that's funded by like all the biggest tech companies. But it that was a breakthrough in, um, in like pros with artificial intelligence. Up until then, we'd done really, really well in images, like sorting images, going through videos, identifying this is a cat, this is not a cat, right? Really brought us along very quickly. But Natural language processing had sort of been limping along until this latest iteration, which is what we call generative artificial intelligence. And that is when you take two artificial intelligences and you sort of pit them against each other. So they learn from the mistake that the other one makes and they can train each other up really fast. And the the um, benefit to this is that it doesn't need as much of human interference it used to be, you know, humans would have to come in and correct a mistake, you know, when things kind of shut down because they ran up against a rule that it didn't understand the AI. Now the AI kind of trains itself. So it made it very good, very quickly. So that's the point we're at. It's not perfect. It doesn't think like a human, but it culls through this enormous database of examples and only data up to 2020, I should say. That's when the training, um, the, the training data set closed so it can't tell you things about recent things for instance but up to 2020 it it sort of pulls out information and sort of figures out how to create its own ontologies and things like that so it has what might be seen as an understanding of a subject but it still makes a lot of mistakes and so where i think the difference is right now what makes it a game changer for most people well two things one is it's not just prose based. You can actually, it's very good at code. So they're finding that it can um, develop code packages like scripts without for a person and you don't need any scripting expertise or anything to do it. And that's a bit of a game changer. Um, but the second thing is, is while it may not be in a position where it can actually do your whole work for you, it's um, it's like a tool right? You could use this to do a first cut at your research. And then you go in and you look at the research and you say, well, this looks right, but this doesn't look right. And you might do a little additional research or you might edit down what they say. So it's like assisted work is what they're calling it. And so who knows when the day comes when it could write a finished novel by itself. But depending on what kind of book you're trying to write and what the subject matter is, you might use Chat GPT to get some work started for you. And then you know, you the higher level human, you know, pick it up from there. So it's not entirely a bad case. It's not great either, though. I have to say.
1: Well, it, it could be handy. You write about you write about somebody you don't really. Some people you don't really see very much in spy fiction. Who's the reports officer? Pretty helpful, <laughs> right? It's like reports <laughs> officer. Well, that sounds exciting. Who's this? Who's this person? Yeah.
0: <laughs> well, you know, they don't get all the glamour of doing the shoe work. Sometimes they might help out if you need extra bodies on a surveillance team or something like that. But they're plugged in in the station and they're plugged in back to the headquarters. And so, you know, I found it was helpful just to have other bodies to sort of bounce things off of, or to be a source or something like that. And plus to give a little bit of attention to the unsung reports officer, right. just like the unsung analysts. Most people don't know what analysts really do. And case officers tend to be a little afraid of analysts because we're the smart ones. And, um, and so, you know, you kind of get denigrated a little bit that we're the nerdy, the nerdy ones in the corner that are boring, that you wouldn't want to talk. And we're not flashy like case officers. Oh, they officers. must
1: have been scared of you. They must have <laughs> been scared. You described one, one case officer, I think he was a smiler. <laughs>
0: Oh yeah,
1: <laughs> I thought, I thought uh, guilty, guilty. Yeah, he was a smiler, but um
0: it, it is kind of crazy. Uh, unfortunately, I mean, I'm, I'm believe me. There's case officers that I love. um There's just been a few that that were cautionary tales. Let's just put it that. Yeah. way Yeah,
1: <laughs> yeah. I just want to sit and talk about those people. So, <laughs> but I got a feeling they're going to show up in some of your books. So I'll I'll, uh, I'll look forward to that
0: they may i mean dmitry teresenko who ends up is the russian um uh, fsb i think who ends up getting flipped and becomes a source i think he's going to be really interesting he's so much fun to write cuz he's so devious and you want to think that he's being truthful but you know if you're smart you'll reserve judgment but it's the same thing that happens with davis is davis a good guy the british and my sixth officer who is um has an affair with Lindsay, uh, even before the book starts, and then you're not really sure, is he, is he a good guy or is he playing her?
1: Yeah, I'm looking forward to seeing um uh, Tarasenko show up again. <laughs> he turned double pretty easily. I don't, you know, I'd, I'd like to see what Didn't happens he, with that. And
0: I, I don't know if he has the same effect on men, but – He's he's kind of a charming bad boy, and so I have found that women readers really like him a lot, you know, and they want to see more of him on the page. Even my editors, <laughs> you know, they're like, "Oh, are we going to see more Tarasenko?" Uh, it's kind of funny.
1: Yeah, no, I was I was, I was I interested know. in the guy. I was like, "What is gonna? What's he gonna? What's he gonna do?" You're keeping it. He keeps his cards pretty close to the vest, but he does have a certain charm with her, you know. I mean, I think you know, Lindsay kind of admits that he is he was attractive, that she was attracted.
0: Yeah, he knows how to do it. So what do you think? How do you feel about him though? Do you think he's charming or do you think or do you think he's kind of a jerk? <laughs> I'm just curious how men feel about him. Yeah,
1: that's interesting because you know, you go to his background and you look at kind of what he what he did and you think, oh, he has to be he really has an ability just to completely sh- shut it off, you know? Mm-hmm. I I just will be careful with the guy because he isn't, he isn't regulated by any emotional code. (laughs) Does that make any sense? Right.
0: No, it absolutely does. You know, I wasn't a Russia specialist, but you can't work in intelligence as long as I did without brushing up against, you know, the Russian target, know a lot of Russian experts, you know, people who, and, and of course people of Russian descent. And so it's, It's given me like a really weird picture of Russians. Should I say that? I mean, I think I think my assessment is right, but they're, you know, because so many of them were raised in the Soviet regime, which was total propaganda, even against their own people. Right? You never knew what to believe and what not to believe. It just made this really interesting and natural character that was so cynical and so different, you know, quite the antithesis to the American culture. I just found it interesting. And the more time I spend in there, the more, you know, it's fun to write, but it's, it makes me kind of scared in a way, right. You know, coming up against this kind of adversary all the time, but uh, I'm doing it right now. As a matter of fact, I'm writing the proposal for another story that um, is very entrenched in Russian culture and thinking and, uh, and especially in intelligence, like how intelligence officers would act a certain way and that sort of thing. And it it's just fascinating to me.
1: It reminds me of this one guy I used to study Kung Fu with way back in my earlier years. And he was Russian. And I remember um, when you're kind of sparring, sometimes you have this, uh, you know, you're not actually fighting somebody. But you are trying to kind of try out your moves and you're kind of throwing you know, punches or kicks at people and they're blocking them. They also teach you to kind of be aware of your partner. You know, you don't want to hurt this person that you're training with, you know, but I just remember this guy, he didn't seem to, he didn't seem to, <laughs> how do I explain it? He didn't seem to have an awareness of the impact of his own strikes. Huh. I mean, you could tell he would pull back at certain times, but there was just never, there just wasn't this ability to maybe understand how this would feel you know, with this certain punch into a person's chest, you know, and it was a really sort of visceral experience of, um, you know, experiencing someone who potentially lacks a little bit of empathy.
0: Well, let me ask you, I'm going to play devil's advocate. Do you think that it was because he lacked, well, I guess it would be a lack of empathy that he just didn't care. He wanted to see what the effect would be. And so he knew he shouldn't do it, but he went ahead and did it anyway, as opposed to that he just wasn't aware of that he was being rougher or more violent than he should have been.
1: That's that's an interesting that's point. What I that's think an interesting point. Like it just he, wasn't
0: It's kind of the heart of it. Yeah. It's
1: more of a value issue than like a psychological limitation.
0: Yeah. 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 He just doesn't
1: <laughs> care. He just doesn't care,
0: he, he just doesn't that, care and that because hurt? at the end of the and day, that hurt
1: you? You're yeah. alive.
0: Ooh, okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I'd say he doesn't yeah, care. Yeah, probably
1: doesn't care. <laughs> Another question about you said you have a lot of ideas for other books in the future. Like, what is the genesis of of one of your novels? Where, where, where does it come from? Is is a character? Is it an event? Is it um, an experience? Is it a smell?
0: <laughs> Boy, smell would be good, wouldn't it? Um, it's probably a lot of it is event driven because so as an analyst your job is to, you have an area of expertise, right? Or at least an area that's kind of your domain that you're supposed to be watching. And you're watching a bunch of stuff. You're watching a collection, which is the take, right? The intelligence take on your topic. And you're looking at the news. A lot of the topics I use were very much, I mean, a lot of the areas that I worked on were very public, You know, if you think of the Iraq war, for instance, like what was happening in the country, there's, you know, the whole world's journalists are concentrated there. So on top of all the intelligence you're getting on a particular topic, you're seeing, you know, hundreds of hours of news footage going by too. And you're supposed to be watching all this to tell when events or something happens that triggers, it kind of reaches a point where policymakers need to know about this. We might need to act on it, right? So you're always looking for the, the, so what of something. Okay. This happened. So what, does it reach a threshold or does it not reach, reach a threshold? And I can't turn it off. i have been doing this my whole life. So I see things in the news and I think, wow, that would make a great story. And this is how it would play out. And this is how they'd be thinking about it down in Langley and in Washington, DC and in Moscow or whatever. And, um, yeah, I think my agents are getting a little tired because I just like every day I'm like, wow, this would make a great story. This would make a great story. So yeah, I, I have way more stories than I can possibly write.
1: Oh, that's fascinating that it's not necessarily driven from like some personal experience of yours, but you have sort of this innate kind of urge through years of service to tell the, some of the stories that might need to be told?
0: Kind of, kind of. So, with, and they end up being sort of high concept right. too. Yeah. So, I'm hoping, I'm hoping my dream is that I can sort of develop this little franchise where we are churning out ideas for things. So,
1: yeah, I love it. I noticed you write about, um, uh, Putin's successor in this, Coogan. On <laughs> one hand, you seem to be disabusing us of this fantasy of regime change. <laughs> you know that, that things will change in Russia. You know if only people rise up against Putin. But you know, be careful who who might. Come after him.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that's an important issue. So, how that happened was like every other espionage writer in the world, I was working on a book and caught by surprise when Russia invaded Ukraine in February of last year. And so, I had to change elements in the book to get ahead of that. And then Gosh darn it, they moved so fast. They just kept sort of plowing through the changes I made. And I, After like the third time, I was like, okay, this cannot go on. It cannot go on up until, because then I'd be making changes, you know, right up until the day we went to press. So I thought, what would, first of all, what everybody in the Western world wants is for Putin to disappear. Right. Like if he went away tomorrow, we'd be in the clear, everything would be okay. yeah. Yeah, and and that's probably not true. But I thought, wouldn't that be interesting to give readers what they think they want? And then also, I knew as a writer that would get me ahead of probably at least up until pub day. Yeah. Now watch if something happens. <laughs> oh my god! I just got a few weeks. You're to telling go. It. just staying in office, yeah. Putin. <laughs> just off. reading
1: his health his health um, reports. It's like hang in there, hang in there. You know?
0: Right, all right. There's been some troubling stories lately about his popularity, and I'm like, just, just you know, keep that iron the, fist a little bit. Hang longer. in
1: there, just until my publication date.
0: But it was also so much fun, right? Because I hate the guy. I'd like to see yeah, him it. leave. So to de- devise this horrible, mysterious end form was just so much fun. Yeah,
1: wasn't that a arena gymnast that had a whiff of like a real rumor? I don't want to say like a real event, but do,
0: do, 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 right? do. Yeah, you
1: can look it up. Yeah, that's yes. Also, I wanted there was one moment where the, your character Westy, I think in Red London, calls. <laughs> um, I know I because I noticed throughout writing this, you say you you don't say the CIA, you say CIA at CIA.
0: Right,
1: right. CIA. <laughs> right. That's what we did. I had to laugh. This one character Westy calls calls Lindsay a CIA agent, and I thought. I mean, right. it's, it's one of those moments where the, it's, the clock is ticking, right? She, she, doesn't have time to explain to him, like, actually, you know, I would be considered a right. case officer who, with non-official cover, who's working with, I mean, it would just, would have been this long description of who she does, but you must, you must right.
0: have been, she, she slapped her forehead, yeah.
1: but she must have been tempted in that moment to correct him.
0: Yeah, you know, I think that might have been a little aside, because as you know, we get that question all the time, like, you know, CIA officers are called spies. Uh, actually, we're not spies. Or, you know, our assets are the spies. And the same thing with the agent and the officer. Well, FBI officers are called <laughs> agents. Yeah. But, you know, you just spend your whole life if you felt like you had to correct people. Now I just kind of go with it. Yeah. Except for the the CIA and the NSA. That just feels too weird.
1: Yeah, yeah. I I I wouldn't know. But, um, you know, uh, thanks for talking to me. I really appreciate this, Alma.
0: Yeah, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. It was very kind of you to have me on.
1: That was Alma Katsu. Thanks for listening to The Live Drop. Her latest book, Red London, is out now. You can find out more about Alma and some of her other works at almakatsubooks.com. End of transmission.